Highly double. Grab your pants. Good morning. It is uh, breakfast time. Have you had your breakfast yet? I have. Uh, <laughs> it's Nick, uh, pa- uh, Patty, Kate, and Judith um, with you this morning at just uh, past seven o'clock. And uh, Earth Matters was what you heard uh, just before seven o'clock from six thirty. Uh, if you want to hear uh, Earth Matters, they are on the regular slot of. Uh, <laughs> He's running through the program really right now. It's actually hard to read through 150 <laughs> names. Tell you what, 3cr.org.au is a perfect place to go. You can find Earth Matters. I suspect they have a podcast, uh, considering the, the quality of they that show. They definitely do. They definitely do. Yeah. Uh, and you can find out exactly when they're broadcast live. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Good, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, let's start with um, it's Mental Health Awareness Week this week. Um, and so one in five. And so we're going to be talking throughout the show, sharing some stories and some professional, um, talking to some professionals in the field. Um, and just to share one in five Australians are affected by mental illness, um, yet many of those don't seek help. So um, we're, we're sharing the light this whole week on breakfast um, and other programs on uh, bringing this to conversation. Yeah, in all sorts of matters. If anything in the show is triggering or otherwise, then you've always got a lifeline on 13 11 14. Big time. And has anyone been able to tune in throughout the week to some of the breakfast? I was a good boy Monday. this week and managed to have a listen in <laughs> yesterday and there were some great interviews with some lovely people in good organisations. Yes, I listened yesterday too. Yeah, mm. and there were mm-hmm. it was, quite yeah. moving actually and... Uh, they were asked, you know, what advice can you give to anyone who's struggling right now? And I felt that, I'm mm. sorry I don't remember the name of the person, but the way she spoke was um, powerful and mm. sensitive. And uh, if I were struggling, I would have called, you know, to speak to someone like <laughs> mm. her. Yeah. And you did as well. You, were, I heard you on um, Monday. That was definitely within the topic as well. On on the international campaign to abolish yes. nuclear weapons, winning the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm still so excited about that. Yeah. And it's great to get some good news. And I, and I guess the response has been really interesting because in most cases, people have felt encouraged and enthusiastic that this grassroots organization has managed to get 122 countries to sign mm. uh, a, a, an agreement, a treaty against uh, nuclear weapons, and uh, it's a huge achievement, and that's been recognised, and it all started in Carlton. I right know, I here. can't believe it. I can believe that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so they started in Carlton, but they launched in Vienna in 2007. Ten years. I wow. mean, what an achievement in ten years. I know, so many signatures they've got on there, and amazing to get it. Recognised by the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, but it's such a shame that Australia still hasn't signed. Yes, indeed. Ironic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, there was an interesting um, editorial in The Age yesterday saying that uh, Julie Bishop has distanced herself from um, Trump's call to um, um, not di- have dialogue with North Korea. And this is kind of a positive thing for Australia because mm. it shows a little bit of standing up. A little bit of agency little away from A little bit of agency, a little bit maybe of our own opinion. <laughs> Glimpses of hope. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, people have said, um, you know, with all the stuff that's going on in North Korea, you know, why is this such an achievement? But in a sense, it, it kind of holds a mirror up to the eight nuclear powers that have not signed. It says, the world says to you, do something about this. So... You know, and I guess we all are anxious. I mean, I'm not diminishing that. We're all anxious about what's going on. But this is a big statement. Mm. 
And uh, coming up in the program today, uh, Patty, a bit later in the program, we're going to be hearing from Wellways Director of Mental Health. We are. Laura's going to be coming in, which is really good. It's lovely to hear a little bit about Wellways. They've been doing some great work and they also sponsor a show that I didn't know that they were. Brainwaves mm. is a great program that's been running for a long time, I think, here at 3CR. I've tuned in a couple of times, not enough, but when I have, there are some great voices on there and some good stories running, so we'll hear a little bit about the organisation that um, helps put that together. And Brainwaves is on at 5pm uh, this afternoon. <laughs> uh, and Kate? and uh, yeah, actually, also later on the show, 7.50, we've got two guests coming from the Artist Committee. Um, they staged a demonstration at the NG- NV- NGV, <laughs> National Gallery of Victoria, um, on Saturday in light of um, Wilson Security and their involvement in detention centres. You'll hear more about that later. So, yes, yeah, stay tuned for that if that interests you. And, uh, Judith, uh, we've, uh, we're speaking to Dennis Mueller. Muller. Muller, sorry. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's not an extra E in there. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> you, I don't know if you've noticed but uh, or read the conversation, but uh, he had an article called The Hansen Effect, How Hate Seeps In and Damages Us All. Um, that was in Monday on the conversation, mm. and it was all rebroadcast or republished on ABC of mm. all things. Mm. So it, I think, it's really touched um, a nerve around mental health and how the kind of hate that's been perpetrated affects all of us. Mm, absolutely. So I look forward to talking to yeah, you. Yeah, that sounds really great. And shortly and, we're going to be and shortly we're with... chatting to Dr. Lucas D. Toka, um, he's Chief Health Officer of Miwaj Health Aboriginal Corporation in Alice Springs, um, and he's talking to us about some amazing programs that are um, locally run um, and how they're affecting and improving the community. So, yeah, we'll hear from him first up after, um, hopefully, if he comes in the studio, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> And look out for the humidity today. It's pretty strong. We're heading to a top of 24. <laughs> Tropics. With, with a lot of showers, apparently. So be confused and be prepared for the unexpected here in lovely, sunny, rainy Melbourne. And tomorrow? Tomorrow, it's an 18, partly cloudy, minimum 11. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. Uh, right, right now, uh, Rachel by the Stream, uh, an artist that came together after the 2012 solar eclipse in uh, far north Queensland. Uh, the artist, uh, well, the, the collection of people got together there and uh, put together this project. Rachel is originally from the UK, now living in Australia, uh, and on the 9th of December we'll be playing at Pleasure Gardens down in St Kilda at Katani Gardens. This is Rachel by the Stream on 3CR Breakfast. Living in the lion's den Don't know when, don't know when It was decided who plays the king Who plays the king's man Living in the lion's den don't know when, don't know when It was decided who plays the king Who plays the king's man I just 
plays the king? Who plays the king's man? Living in the lion's den. Don't know when, don't know when it was decided. Who plays the king? Who plays the king's man? Calling to the north, to the east, south, and west. Calling to myself, bring forth what I do best. Sending out a message, we are all blessed. Yes, no seeds, sticks, stems, emptiness. The depth, the feeling, the lyrics, the song, the calm from the seed of the dream, and the seed that's planted, got to grow until we have no need to live in the land of Babylon and be brought to our knees. Now we stand tall and strong on the roots of ancient trees, blessing the songs that give us the time and space to be here now and breathe. Living in the lion's den. Don't know when, don't know when it was decided. Who plays the king? King, 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 king. 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 I stay in Babylon. I just keep carrying along. Make my way to where the city needs to see. Good morning, good morning, morning. (laughs) Pat, Nick, uh, Judith and myself, Kate. And um, to get right into Mental Health Awareness Week, um, with a bang, we chat with Dr Lucas D. Toka. He's the Chief Health Officer um, at Muwaj Health Aboriginal Corporation in Alice Springs. Um, Hi, Lucas. Thanks for joining us this morning. Hi, Kate. How are you? Awesome. Nice to have you in the studio um, all the way from Alice. Although I would like to say you've come to visit 3CR, um, (laughs) you're actually here for... um, um, to be on the panel discussion of the uh, Aboriginal, International Aboriginal, help me out the, here. Uh, <laughs> Indigenous Data Sovereignty Symposium Sympo- at the University of Melbourne. Yeah, can, can you just tell us a little bit about that, that event actually before we get into um, your work out in Alice? Uh, sure. Uh, also, I'm coming from Nulumbui in East Arnhem Land. Okay. From Alice, so right. the northern coast of yep. the Northern Territory. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, so... Melbourne is the University of Melbourne the, and, and IATSIS um, the, and the Indigenous Studies within the University of Melbourne are convening this uh, first Indigenous Data Sovereignty Symposium with um, guests from New Zealand and, and other nations to talk about the importance of data for Indigenous communities and not only 
um, make sure that there's good access to good quality data that can inform evidence for policy, but also that uh, Indigenous communities retain and maintain ownership of that data about their own communities, uh, as opposed to what's happened in the past where you know, researchers might just go and, and collect and mine data, fulfill their PhDs and give nothing back to the community. Yeah, wow, that's awesome. That's a really, is it um, the first year or they've had this one for a few I years? I believe so. It's yeah. hosted by, by Professor Marcia Langton, Yeah. Um, the, the Indigenous academic, and yeah, we're pretty excited about it. Yeah, that's great that you've come down from East Arnhem Land for that. Um, and there'll be quite a few people there as well, I think. Actually, it's booked out if I, I checked online and yeah, full event. Oh, yeah, Should yeah. Be good. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so about the Mouage Health uh, program that you're running, it's been going for a number of years, 20, 25 years? Yeah, so Mouage is the uh, regional Aboriginal Community Control Health Service yeah. in Istanbul. It's, it's the largest uh, remote Aboriginal medical service in Australia. Wow. And, um, and yeah, we've been operating for 25 years on Yolngo land in, in northeast Arnhem land. And um, as part of the different programs that we run within a comprehensive um, rights-based approach to primary health care, mm. um, we have a fairly well-established mental health program or social-emotional well-being program. What are some of the, I guess, the problems out there that you're, you know, that um, you're finding in the area um, that you're trying to support and help? So what are some of the issues that are faced? So in the space of uh, mental health, uh, the communities out there in Arnhem Land um, have a similar spectrum of, of mental illness that you would see in other places. So mm. we uh, we deal from um, supporting people through situations of distress or mild or mild anxiety to the more heavy end of the spectrum with psychosis and schizophrenia and chronic severe mental illness. Mm. Um, however, it's important that uh, to acknowledge that in those communities in which remoteness is an impact, um, the long long-standing impact of colonisation policies like the intervention. Um, the yeah. the gap in or the so-called gap in mm. in health outcomes that means um, people die more often and earlier. Mm. Um, communities have to deal with a significant amount of trauma uh, that has to inform any intervention that you make in terms of health or particularly mental health. You need to acknowledge that these co- these communities have outstanding resilience and um, but but are coming from a situation of baseline high levels of trauma um, that condition um, how how you have to approach these things. Mm, absolutely. And what I liked about the program and how it differs from other programs, state-based programs that come into the area, is this is run by, you said, the Yungung um, yep. people. So what are some of the ways that maybe differ from other programs? Like how are they, you know, is it more effective? And, and what are some of those differences that we would see when it's run by community? Yeah. So um, the, the the difference or the difference in effectiveness really to us is, uh, is an all or nothing thing. Like, uh, we don't think uh, uh, any, any kind of program that looks at supporting people through um, health, um, achieving good health or, or through disease processes, but particularly mental health programs cannot work if they're not community-owned, community-based mm-hmm. and community-run. And that's the philosophy that sips through the entirety of our service. We, we are Yolngo started, Yolngo owned, and mostly Yolngo managed. I am I'm merely an employee privileged enough to be working for mm. um, a board made of the community elders who determine what we do and how we do it. Um, so our program is not only Yolngo designed and, and owned, but it's um, about 90% Yolngo staffed. So mm. um, it is centred around 
um, teams that are based in community, who are from the community, who speak the local languages, um, or the, the main language and the other and the other dialects, who know the people, the families, many in many cases are family members, mm. and they use what we call a both ways approach um, to to tackle these issues. So they combine Western style of training, best evidence practice, um, and uh, and new techniques and, and internationally accepted uh, approaches to mental health, while at the same time combining um, the local knowledge, cross-cultural capability, and use of traditional forms of healing and, and, um, and socialization embedded into this. So we, we, when, when we approach uh, interaction with our client and their family, first of all, there's a, there's a family-centered um, um, initiative, so we, we don't just simply see people as individuals disconnected from their community mm. um, and then before we the team even goes and considers what what range of counseling or therapy or, or pharmacotherapy can be applied let's first determine who within the team is the right person from the right clan yeah, from wow. the right position and relationship yeah. to actually have that conversation with that person and that family so it's very targeted or specialized sort of for each it's very individualized it's so a, yeah it's patient-centered and it's completely focused on on the person's needs not so much what the service can offer yeah um, what are, like, I know you sort of say there's cu cultural approaches and you come in from these different angles, but can you give us an example, I guess, of what that might look like? So, um, what are one of the, what are one of the healing techniques or cultural approaches that, um, are, are used or taken? Like, is there something that you can share with us about that? Yeah. So, um, I, I guess what, what's important is in, in order to, um, accompany a person through any, um, healing or recovery process, mm. you need to establish a strong uh, therapeutic partnership. You, mm. you, you need to walk together with that person or, or your team needs to walk together with that person and their family in the process. Um, you cannot really achieve that if you uh, do not understand and cannot participate in the cultural mores and the, and the understanding of the world of a particular community. Um, so, for instance, we most of our activity um, would happen outside of the clinic. The um, the teams would work in community on on community with people. Mm, fabulous. Um, a lot of the activity is done through um, reconnection to country and to culture and reconnection with um, activities that the person, due to the mental illness or to other issues, might have lost contact with. So, um, a lot of the recovery process um, is done through um, hunting trips in which people go and fish and hunt in traditional ways or or camps out in the community or stations or homelands um, in which through that process of um, working out the, and, and supporting the person in achieving their goals in the kinship structure, in the ceremonial structure and, and in the cultural obligations, um, you, you, you help reestablish a sense of worth while at the same time delivering the brief intervention, counseling techniques or, or even interaction with the general practice service for medication as mm. needed. Oh, it sounds fabulous. Yeah, I'm just thinking mainstream mental health could learn so much uh, from what you're doing. It's just terrific. But I guess it also depends on a community uh, being on board with all mm. of that because that's very intensive and you need resources to do that. Um, yeah, yes and no. Uh, I completely agree with the, the fact that this we, we don't think this is just good practice for uh, delivering services in remote Aboriginal health within this good practice full stop and Frank Quinlan from Mental Health Australia uh, was referring to this on the ABC a few weeks ago he was saying they were this our model up a model was a, an example for remote mental health delivery not just in an Aboriginal context um, yes for sure I, I agree yeah, yeah. The, the, the community buy-in is not only important but it's 
it's it's the beginning of it. Like we mm-hmm. we we are not delivering a program as an external source coming in. Um, as I said, I, I I've come in where the program is already established, and I work with um, the Malaka the Maranju, who is the manager of the program, and and she says what needs to be done, how it needs to be done, and I just work in achieving the resources and making sure we have the structures so that we can deliver it. Um, in terms of resourcing. Um, yeah, there, there needs to be some investment in remote mental health, but because the teams are community-based as opposed to um, travelling back and forth, it's actually um, more cost-efficient than than a standard state-run um, visiting program. Yes, I'd like to just go back to the conference you're going to on uh, data sovereignty. I think this is so interesting because the whole way that data is collected and what data is collected is highly political. And, uh, you know, there, what data are you particularly interested in uh, within your... What, what, what would you like to see happening that may not be happening? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, what, what data you collect, how you collect it, how you look at it, and what data you, not, you don't collect um, are all political choices. And, and that's, that's something that we, we, we have always seen as part of, of um, what we do. We, the, the, the people who started our, our health service... Um, many of the leaders who started a health service were signatories of the Bach petition back in 1960s, where people involved in the land rights movement um, through you know, suing the uh, aluminium mine um, that happened in Istan and were some of the founders of Yodhi Indi, the band, calling for treaty. So um, we, our health service sees health as a, as a political activity and all the choices that we made uh, shape up what the leaders think uh, is, is relevant. So we, we do routinely um, collect data in a range of health indicators and health outputs. In fact, the original primary healthcare sector, um, we think, is, is, is better and more advanced at, um, at keeping and, and using data to inform um, practice and service delivery. So we, our teams have a proactive approach to healthcare. We're not just sitting in a in a GP consult room waiting for people to come in for their 15-minute appointment. We actually take a population health approach, so we work um, with multidisciplinary teams. It's not doctor-centric. We have Aboriginal health practitioners, nurses, allied health staff, and based on what we know in terms of that population with diabetes, in terms of the housing needs of of the families we serve, or um, in terms of um, ensuring kids are growing healthy, then we have that data-informed, targeted approach to working with the families out of the clinic, um, mm-hmm. achieving their health goals. Mm-hmm. Are you using decolonization theory in some of the work you're doing, or is that just too obvious a question? <laughs> no, it's not too obvious a question, sadly. Um, and, and sometimes we have to remind um, external service providers that um, their activity could be recolonizing. But, um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, great work, and thank you for sharing the program and you know the program out, and for sharing the symposium that you're heading to now. I think we need to see more um, more community initiatives like this and community-run programs for sure. Um, so thank you for joining us today at 3CR. You've got a big day in. Are you here for one day or two days? Uh, a couple of days. A couple yeah. of days. Yeah. Are you going to have uh, a latte in Melbourne? Because yeah, they're really I'll, good down I'll, here. I'll probably need about six right now. Great. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'm glad you've had your head start. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Um, there, there were just a couple of words that I, I wanted to. Well, something that came to mind just during that whole interview. Um, that uh, words that really stuck with me because they're appropriate in so many uh, cases, and I think mm. they're appropriate here. And they come from Lila Watson, uh, activist and academic. Uh, and she said, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And 
really wise words, nice. I thought. So, <laughs> this is 3CR Wednesday Breakfast here with Nick, Kate, uh, Patty, and Judith. And uh, uh, shortly we are going to be hearing from Dennis Muller. Um... Green Left Weekly Radio. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests and that's Green Left Weekly. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. Tune in every Friday morning at 8am on 3CR. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Experience unconditional love and deep peace when Her Holiness Ama Sri Karunamai visits Melbourne for the following free public programs. Friday, October 20th, Spiritual Discourse at Fitzroy Town Hall from 7pm. Saturday, October 21st, Individual Blessings with Ama at St Kula Town Hall from 11am. And Sunday, October 22nd, Sacred Fire Ceremony at Rockbank Sri Durga Temple from 10am. For details, call or text... 0490886215 that's 0490886215 or see online eventbrite.com search ama melbourne that's a m m a melbourne a 3cr supporter 3cr breakfast uh, on your wednesday morning it is uh, the ooh, 11th of october we're quickly powering through the year I know, didn't a 7-Eleven just close down and a Christmas store open up just on Smith Street? Just, just around the corner. This is the, uh, this is the 7-Eleven that we all go to here at, um, uh, at 3CR if we need our newspapers uh, or, or coffee, I guess. Um, and it's currently, a, well, it's a Christmas shop now. I don't know. Uh, there's no 7-Eleven. It's such a shock. It's filled with Santa's Christmas moved trees. In. So, yeah, I guess so. Um, and we were just talking uh, in, in, the, in the break there um, about, uh, oh, well, actually, I was listening to, 
uh, an interview the other day um, with two journalists who have been following along with the story about um, famed or infamous uh, Australian cult, The Family, uh, over the years. And um, I noticed that I, I picked up the Sometimes uh, yesterday and As I noticed... Every good person should. Uh, on the front page there, um, Sarah, who we had in a few... Well, probably about a month ago now, a little over a month ago from The Sometimes, um, had interviewed somebody from The Family. So mm. just said to Patty, uh, hey, let's try and... Something I'm, I'm very interested in, uh, how these things come about uh, uh, on... You know, it's how it all, you yeah, know, these sort of cult uh, mentalities there's come about. There's been a renewed interest in that cult because, yeah, there's a lot of conspiracy theories that float around and then there's also a lot of people who are swept up into that and the aftermath of of that cult family and mm. where the children What's went. What's her name again? Anne-Marie? And yeah. Oh, and it's not Anne Parker. No. Uh, no uh, there's a, it's a hyphenated in yeah. there. But uh, anyway, that's something for us to follow up Probably. in the future. Uh, <laughs> right now on uh, 3CR Breakfast, uh, Judith. Yes, Dennis, are you there? I am, Judith. Fantastic. So, Dennis, I'm just going to introduce you, um, first of all, to, to the audience. And yes. um, you're a senior research fellow in the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. That's correct. You've got extensive experience in print journalism. Yes. And uh, for your sins, you did a doctoral thesis on media ethics and accountability. That's true. Yes. <laughs> so... Um, and you've had an article published in The Conversation and uh, republished on the ABC just this week, The Hanson yeah. effort, Effect, sorry, How Hate Seeps In and Damages Us All. So um, I read that with interest on, on Monday and felt it, it's addressing something that is probably on the minds of many people in Australia. But, but just to start, um, you walk into a shop for a haircut and yeah. leave with a story so how did that happen? What happened? Well, I've been going to this little hair salon for some years. It's not very far from where I live. And I've got to know the lady a little bit there. Uh, not much, you know. Hairdressers stay away from speaking about personal things. Um, but on this occasion, uh, she told me that... Um, that she had um, been cutting the hair of another person for about 20 years, a middle-aged lady. And the week before I came in, this uh, lady had come in for a haircut and she just launched to the, into this tirade against Muslims. And so my hairdresser lady heard her out for a long time and then uh, eventually she said, well, I'm a Muslim uh, and I'm very sorry to say that after 20 years, I must tell you, I will no longer cut your hair. And she was, as she, she told me the story, uh, she was obviously upset because she'd been in Australia since she was a little girl. She's now a woman, I would think, approaching 60. She's been running this little hair salon for about 40 years. She knows all about the neighborhood. She cuts the hair of um, the disabled and the elderly in various local institutions. She's She's part of the fabric of the neighbourhood. And, and it sounds like she's making a great contribution. Mm. She, well, she is in that quiet way that so many people do. Mm. Um, and she's, she's a lovely woman. She's gentle. She's, she's got that sort of bright smile you often see in a hairdresser. And in particular, you know how hairdressers are sort of... Um, Amateur psychologist, really. A lot Absolutely. of people. <laughs> they are. Uh, well, sure. she has that empathetic personality 
that just, you know, enables people to feel at ease with her. And she doesn't wear anything except sort of standard Western clothing. She doesn't wear any scarf. There's no sign in the salon or in her dress uh, that she's Muslim. And she regards that um, as a completely private and separate matter, as most of us would. Um, you know, I don't, uh, I, I grew up in the Catholic faith. I'm not a practicing Catholic, but, you know, I wouldn't dream of hanging a crucifix in my university study. And, yes, and for the same yes. reason, there's, there's no sign in her salon that, um, that she's Muslim. And so there's, um, this came as a, as a real shock to her that someone should uh, be so, um, well, uh, you know, uh, so outspokenly uh, discriminatory and towards then it sounds people of like, faith. It sounds like it was painful for you, too, to hear that story. Well, it was, because, she, as I say, I, I, you know, at a, at a personal level, I'm, I'm fond of her. I've, I've been getting my hair cut there for some years. And, she, you know, she's a friend at that level. And so to see a friend hurt, and you could see the hurt all over her face, uh, really was quite upsetting. I, you know, I really did feel quite upset, and and it occurred to me a bit later that um, you know this this is a story about what happens at a personal level when our politics at a national level goes so wrong. Yes, you know, and, we, we, and the article that you wrote brings that together. I thought really well. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, we've been. You can go take it back a, a long way, of course, the question of race in Australia. But I think, in terms of Muslims, you can certainly take it back to um, to 1996, where you have Pauline Hanson really playing the race card in national politics for the first time since the 1960s. Really, the first time since the abolition of the white Australia policy. And she did that with that maiden speech of hers in 1996 when she talked about our being swamped by Asians. And John Howard, instead of repudiating this, says, well, but that's, that's, uh, that's fine. That's all about free speech. And then you get the, the 2001 Tampa election in which um, uh, both, both people who are uh, overwhelmingly Muslim um, are the, the butt of Howard's assertion of national sovereignty. You know, we'll decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they'll come. And so it goes. And then 2013, Kevin Rudd, as the Labour leader, out, tries to outdo everybody by lowering the boom on um, the asylum seekers who've uh, who finished up now on Manus Island and Nauru, saying they'll never come to Australia. Um, and then we get the efforts to undermine the Racial Discrimination Act. And, and so, then, so it's cumulative. It, it is a cumulative it. effect, and it, it kind of, I think it legitimizes in the minds of ordinary people um, the idea that racism's okay. Mm. Yes. And that's, that's really, I think, terribly damaging. I mean, we've seen, heavens knows, you'd have thought the 20th century would have taught us where racism eventually leads yes and mm. and we we seem to have disregarded that lesson and then of course ultimately you get Hanson uh, with this burqa stunt uh, in the senate in, in august this year mm. and so you know i think it's it creates this atmosphere where once upon a time it, it was not okay to be racist openly in australia and now it is 
Yes, and uh, you know, I think this because we're in Mental Health Week. I think this has an impact on all our mental health. You know, uh, of course, the people that are uh, you know the, at the end of that discrimination, as the woman is that you described, perhaps feel it more deeply. But we're all we all feel it at some level and experience it at some level, and I think it leads to a kind of environment that's uh, negative for all our mental health. That would be my feeling. Well, I think that's that's absolutely true. Um, my wife and I have a kind of um, surrogate daughter who's Chinese because she came to Australia as a 17-year-old student. My wife taught her the piano, and um, because she was so young. Um, you know, my wife took her under her wing a bit. And my wife has experienced it firsthand. Um, people shouting racist comments at her out of one car, out of car, out of one person's car into our car. Uh, you know, saying, well, I'm not going to repeat what they said, but, you know, revolting stuff. Mm. Uh, and I, I think it does obviously add to um, the, you know, negative atmosphere of, of society, which is, I think, terribly unfortunate, but also it seems to me that it undermines one of the things that Australians express great pride in, which is our multicultural project. Yes. If you ask, as I do, I do a lot of qualitative research work, and if you ask people what are the, what are the good things about life in Australia, one of the things that always comes up is the success of our multicultural project. Um, and people say this. And uh, and I think they genuinely believe it, but then they don't. Uh, some people don't see the connection between the success of that project and the tolerance that we have been showing to new arrivals uh, ever since the Second World War. Yes, and that that's now been uh, diminished in some way. I think so. Yes. Yes, and as a person who's studied media ethics and accountability, I'm wondering to what extent would you hold the media accountable for the current situation? Well, I think some elements of the media uh, certainly are. Um, I think, I mean, the most, I think, conspicuous example of that would be Alan Jones, the um, very high-profile breakfast announcer on 2GB in Sydney. Um, he's the man who basically incited violence against what he called Middle Eastern grubs, uh, a remark which um, was part of the sequence of events that led up to the Cronulla riots in Sydney a few summers ago. I mean, it's so upsetting mm. to hear this kind of thing because as a person who's actually lived in the Middle East for a period of time on two occasions, I mean, the hospitality and support and kindness mm. I received, and it, that was in Syria and in Lebanon, was just amazing. So, yes, well, mm. uh, you see, people like Alan Jones think there are ratings to be had out of this kind of thing. Well, politicians probably think so too, or they wouldn't support it. I'm sure they do. Oh, yes, I'm sure that, that politicians uh, know that there are, there are votes uh, in this kind of behaviour, whereas um, uh, perhaps in, in an earlier time, before the fear that has been generated, doubtless by the events of September 11, um, uh, would have been not vote winners at all, but I think the the climate of fear, and, and the climate of fear is rational, of course, but the climate of fear has been exploited and exaggerated for political purposes, and I think that 
that there was that the, the way in which uh, race and in particular religious discrimination against Muslims has been exploited in successive elections for the past what fifteen years uh, indicates that politicians really do think there are votes in this stuff. And what are the ways? Sorry, Dennis, this is Patty here. I was wondering what are some of the ways that uh, a society, a democratic society, can look to tackle this in a media landscape that now is dominated by people like Trump who are winning ratings, media's jumping on it, they're selling papers and they're clicking away on articles whether you agree or disagree. What are some tactics or strategies that could be implemented to stop this sort of hate field speech that is seeping into our everyday? Well, I think the main thing the media can do, you can't ignore it, you can't not report these things. But uh, the main thing I think the media can do is frame their reportage in a way which indicates that this is not all right. Um, now, you know, if if, uh, if Senator Hanson wears a burqa into the Senate, there's no way you can't report this. Uh, but you, as the, I think in this case the media did, they reported the very powerful response of Senator Brandis, the Attorney General, uh, in a way which framed the story in a disapproving kind of way. Uh, so you, I, I think the framing of the story, the way you present it, uh, is, is everything, really, because the media do have a responsibility to report, not to suppress, uh, but not to report in a way which, uh, which gives oxygen or approval to it, but which, um, which actually... Uh, creates an atmosphere of disapproval around it. That's, I think, what the media can do, and also not uh, take up causes themselves uh, that are based on, on uh, discrimination of, of any kind. Uh, we're seeing it in a, in a different way with the uh, same-sex marriage debate. You know, there are, there are ways of reporting these things which can uh, incite hatred of minorities or people you don't agree with, and there are ways of reporting it which don't do that. And I think that's the, that's the ethical obligation on the media to report in ways which are calculated to discourage rather than encourage discrimination. Dennis, Nick here. Um, I, perhaps I'm feeling a little bit more cynical about the nature of our media landscape now, but when you were saying just then um, that the media uh, needs to report these uh, powerful messages to stand against silly things like what Senator Hanson did, um, I just keep thinking in the back of my head, but we, we, have, this, um, we have this highly divergent media uh, landscape now where uh, it's uh, different, different groups of people are consuming media in totally different ways, and one of those things, that, that powerful response from certain aspects of the media Media is is looked at. Um, it seems by other aspects or other uh, other aspects of the media, or people that are maybe using online uh, resources more, as something that they want to tear down. They want to get rid of that power. They look at that and they go, "Oh, it's the you know, it's the mainstream. We want to get rid of that. That's silly. We we will go against anything that is the mainstream." And this uh, seems to be one of the unique problems that we're facing now. Because uh, before, I was also thinking that um, you you mentioned that after World War. Two, we really uh, put to, together this multicultural project, but um, uh, my, my uh, partner's uh, grandparents, both of them, uh, one from Greece, one from um, uh, from uh, Poland, um, came over after World War Two, and they were they were chucked away in camps. Um, oh, absolutely! We, it, was a, it was a hard won <laughs> success. I mean, um, the, the very first um, immigrants to come here 
after the war were, came from the Baltic states because they were white. And the Minister for Immigration at the time, uh, Arthur Colwell, I think, um, brought them here, brought boatloads of what he called the beautiful bolts because he didn't want to frighten the population. And and it was and certainly when I mean, if you speak to I've got a friend who's Italian and you know her parents came here they were of course they were wogs they were called jippos they were called all sorts of things um, so the multicultural project was very hard won and didn't wasn't in any sense an overnight success but your other point I think is a very important one about um, the the impact of online media and and online interchanges in general. And I think that's true. I think that we are living through a time where suddenly uh, everybody can be a publisher. Suddenly um, material which once upon a time or remarks that once upon a time would have been confined to the public bar just before closing time uh, now gets an airing uh, globally, if, if people wish. And so we are living through a period of enormous social adjustment to this. I don't think there's an, an easy or short-term answer to it, but I do think that the professional media, um, the, the so-called and much vilified mainstream media, uh, have professional obligations that transcend the personal views of the, uh, of the professional practitioner himself. Uh, whatever I, as a, as a individual practitioner, think, you know, if I'm practicing as a professional journalist, then I have obligations to adhere to ethical standards of taste and decency and fairness and balance and impartiality and all the rest of it um, that, are not, that don't apply and can't apply to the population as a whole. And, and when I was talking a minute ago, I was really talking about uh, professional practitioners and and we are gatekeepers and we should be gatekeepers and gatekeeping is good yes indeed and uh, I just want to thank you so much uh, for coming on this morning Dennis and I'm just thinking of the responses around the studio here like you know so many people have been touched by this issue by the discrimination that friends family people they know feel and I think what you've really shown is that when one group is diminished one person we are all diminished in some way I think you've really brought that out so thank you so much for coming to 3CR this morning and it's well, been, a, it's been a great pleasure, Judith. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, lovely. Bye-bye now. Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor, The New International Bookshop, for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. But next up in the show, we have, um, we have two guests, Gabrielle and Nina. Um, they're from the Artist Committee. And on Saturday, there was a peaceful demonstration in the National Gallery, Victoria, um, highlighting Wilson's involvement with um, the NGV and their involvement with, well, the Wilson security involvement with detention centres. Um, so it was an interesting demonstration. Can you actually talk us through the day and, and what, you do, what happened, what you guys did? Yeah, of course. Thanks very much for having us. It was actually on Friday. Sorry, no, Friday. No problem <laughs> Came out in the news on Saturday. No. Yes, no <laughs> um, basically, a group of artists, so sculptures, theatre producers, uh, writers and uh, visual artists, um, we met at the NGV and we... Um, 
we veiled, covered the weeping, uh, Picasso's Weeping Woman. Um, we covered it up to represent the cover-up of Wilson's security, uh, who have um, covered up human rights abuses, mm. um, doing Australia's dirty work, um, or the Australian government's dirty work in offshore detention centres in Nauru and Manus Island. Um, so the, the shroud that we had was um, uh, emblazoned with the insignia of Wilson security mm. and four artists stood in front of it to protect the work from, from being damaged, to protect the um, shroud from being taken down and they were then surrounded by six more buffers um, to prevent any kind of intervention happening close to the work. Mm. Um, and we stayed there um, for an hour while... Um, security tried to figure out what to do with us. They shut down the gallery spaces and it was really to send a message to Wilson Security and to the NGV that nobody should be doing business in offshore detention and if they are, as Wilson Security are, that nobody should be doing business with those businesses that profit from, yeah, from offshore detention. It was a great demonstration and you know, great display of, of, of um, a kind of, kind of artistic demonstration in a way. You guys, you know, ran. What was the symbolism of uh, Weeping Woman as the painting that you chose to, to cover up? Uh, Picasso's Weeping Woman represents a universal suffering. Mm. Um, it's one of the NGV's most loved and expensive artworks. Mm. And it's actually a, a postscript from um, Picasso's infamous work Guernica, which is to... Um, was meant to show the horrors of the uh, Spanish Civil War. And after he painted that that massive epic masterpiece, he then did these series of postscripts of this particular motif of the weeping woman. And it's a woman who cries for her dead children, her lost family, and just mm. the violence of conflict mm. in general. And it became less about um, the Spanish Civil War than a, than a um, kind of universal image of, of human suffering. I, I didn't realise that the weeping woman was connected to Guernica, which mm. is such a powerful uh, painting. Mm. So it's a totally appropriate um, selection for your demonstration. Mm. Thank you. So Wilson Security, so get some, I guess, logistical. <laughs> Wilson Security uh, has, a, has a contract with the NGV. Is it a recent contract? So Wilson Security are the interim security provider for the NGV. Their previous provider was found to be acting, conducting unethically and so they opted in to the state government's procurement process <clears throat> excuse me whereby they are um, they're actually waiting for the state government to deliver um, a security provider and the, the NGV is waiting for sorry yeah yeah for, so the NGV is um, is is on an interim contract with Wilson's yep. but they're in that time they're waiting for a um, permanent security provider from the state government. Okay, so yep. they'll be changing. They'll be changing. Yeah, correct. But um, the it was it's the same panel that's going to assign their their long term contract as the one that has assigned this interim contract. So the state government has given them Wilson security. Yeah. And then the state government will deliver a next one. So there's nothing to say mm. that the the people who deemed mm. Wilson security to be an appropriate company for our state cultural institutions to be dealing with is are going to to deem them um, appropriate again. Mm. And I, I want to share, you, before you staged the demonstration, you had 1,500 signatories that wrote to um, the, the CEO or the chair of NGV. Um, 
what has happened since the demonstration? Have you heard? Who, who did you write? Mm-hmm. Who was the signatories to? Yeah, so we submitted a letter to Tony Elwood, the director of the National Gallery of Victoria, on behalf of 1,500 1, signatories mm-hmm. of artists, um, art goers, NGV members, and art workers. Mm-hmm. And um, we have actually since then met with Tony Elwood to discuss the interim contract. And um, not very much came from that meeting, other than that he said six times that he's heard us and understand <laughs> understands <laughs> our point of view. <laughs> yep. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Mm. But but absolutely no indication that there'd be any kind of commitment to making um, a stand changes. and taking moral leadership on mm. this issue. They're very much kind of it's out of our hands attitude. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I guess the bigger. The bigger issue at hand, I mean, yes, Wilson's got a contract with NGV, but is it to shine light on Wilson's um, human rights abuses in the detention centres in Nauru, in um, Manus Island? Is that what is that part of the... That's one aspect, but I guess um, we, we want to raise awareness that the NGV are helping Wilson's profit from human rights abuses. Mm. And as a state institution... And as people associated with that institution, so artists ourselves, um, we don't want to be part of that. Yeah. It, I guess that's so there's like lots of different effects that this is going to have as well. And, and one of the things is that we want to make sure that whatever company is taking over from Broad Spectrum um, who are finishing up their contract um, at the end of this month, um, that that they're actually going to not be let off the hook, mm. that, that we're going to um, pursue them in whatever way that we can to make sure that their brand is permanently damaged by the, the horrors that they're conducting on those on those two detention centres. Yeah. And the state government also for, uh, for hiring them and, and mm. supporting them, it sounds like. And I think it's great that you've brought us this to our attention, the community attention, because often we don't know actually, you know, the tentacles that go out and support organisations like Wilson mm-hmm. Security. Yeah, that's what we thought um, when we first found out that Wilson's was taking over the interim contract at the NGV. Um, they didn't release any information about that. No, you know, none of my friends in the artist community knew about it. And I'm a member and I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that members do know where they're, they're choosing to put their money. It's really important. They, they actually instructed their security providers not to tell anyone about who their employer was. So yeah, it wow. was very hard for us to extract information and it was only the people who were about to lose their job there, some after 14 years of having worked there, um, who would actually speak about the changeover in contract. Yeah. Um, yeah, Paddy, do you... And how, I just wanted to know um, the groundswell, what started this and who got together and how long mm. from the decision to go forth and cover this painting and yeah, the time between mm. and the decision making. So we released the letter um, to, to gather signatories um, on the day that the contract started, which was the 26th of July this year. Um, and during the time as, uh, when signatures were gathering, people were um, writing to us wanting to be um, involved in more discussions about what would happen after the letter um, circulated and was delivered um, and so uh, I, I guess a group of artists sometimes between four and ten artists started meeting um, and discussing ideas and it was from those meetings that this 
um, idea to to shroud the weeping woman came you know as a way to to put more pressure on an industry that's um, very very much aware of their public image and and very much concerned about their reputation and wouldn't likely wouldn't be likely to kind of make any bold moves. Awesome. Um, so actually, let's just hear a little bit about Artist Committee. Um, what what are, what are you guys and um, how is it run? Okay. Um, the Artist Committee is a group of uh, like-minded individuals. We all come from different aspects of, of the art world and um, we're arts workers, we're, we are artists and um, some of us do have experience in activism and um, it's a very, oh, I, I like to think it's egalitarian. We don't, um, we, we... We don't necessarily have a hierarchy, yeah, do exactly. we? Thank yeah, exactly. And... Um, and it's a very fluid, informal membership. In fact, it's it's a very new um, new group that's formed. So we are still kind of becoming aware of its shape mm. ourselves. Yeah. Um, and and we had formed a little bit earlier than this project um, to look at other ways in which money and culture and ethics intersect. And this project came to our awareness through mm. a um, through through a piece of information that we received. Um, so it, yeah, it's it, we don't name who's in the group because we don't even necessarily know ourselves. It depends who comes along and who wants to be involved. And, yeah, yeah. Be a grassroots community fluid. Exactly. I think we know You're all about it here yeah. at Three CR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. but I think we have some outgoing and ingoings even yeah. in the next few months. Yeah, I yeah. think that it's really like artists have typically been really politicized, and I think that we sometimes forget that and and look. Um, artists these days I think are kind of taught through this to their like education system to look internally and mm. to not collaborate and not um, you know get too involved in in external things and I actually think that's a it's a push against that and it's a kind of politicizing of of who we, of what we do as artists mm. Gabrielle and Nina, thank you for joining us this morning and thank you for sharing some of your, you know, your art and your activism in this area. And I think it's really important that we have people um, like you that step up and really shine that light and do these small stage demonstrations because, yeah, they're, ver they're very important and, um, and we need to bring it back into public awareness. So mm -hmm. thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Oh, uh, just finally, when is the petition being uh, tabled or delivered? Oh, it or it has been delivered. It has been delivered. On the 11th so, of August. Right, okay. So there's no, no point sharing the link for more uh, signatories. I mean, I could share it, but... Uh, a hashtag. We have a hashtag. I, Boy I have found Boycott several. Wilson. Yes. <laughs> and and Artists Against Abuse. Yeah. Artists Against Abuse. Yeah, and we, we please do share the um, the website, which is artistcommittee.com, and people can still add their name to that letter. Mm. There's no reason why they shouldn't, but it's also if they want to see images of the protest, there's a, Great. a section there, and, um, and they can get in touch if they're interested in joining us so find that on uh facebook on 3cr wednesday breakfast page there thanks very much uh it is uh 3cr wednesday breakfast um up soon i think we're going to be uh, uh touching on some news stories perhaps we share some news we will yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh and we're heading for a top of uh i've got actually 26 today uh patty but um i think i must be looking at a different Optimistic. weather report to you so <laughs> but we'll with go, a lot I'll of rain a lot, lot of rain later <laughs> Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Patman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. 
So tune in to 3PR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. On Thursday afternoon from 3.30 until 4 o'clock. And let's get radical about philosophy. CR is very proud to announce the launch of the Beyond the Bars 2017 CD. Okay, Puffer, you're up to go and see the bail justice. I don't want to go and see him. I say, no, I won't worry about it, you know. Sure enough, here comes a truck. I'm going to Dame Phyllis. Come along to Mesa at 184 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy on Thursday the 2nd of November from 6 to 8pm. The launch will feature a live panel discussion on Aboriginal incarceration, Q&A and deadly music. Oh, like, I don't regret being in jail, not one bit. Solitude and centeredness is difficult to find in the centre of chaos. So this has become, unfortunately enough, a place to be by myself and away from all that other stuff. And, and there's, less, there's less chaos in here than there is out there. Beyond the Bars 2017 CD launch, Thursday 2nd of November, upstairs at Mesa, 6 till 8pm. Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events. And learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. And by the last few remaining kangaroos, can't. <laughs> Thank you, Freedom of Species. And it's about six minutes past eight on the 11th of October. As we said, heading for a top of 26 degrees today, but with a lot of rain about, so it's going to be pretty muggy. Here with Nick, Kate, Patty, and Judith, and we're going to be uh, going touching to on some news. Touching on some news really briefly. Um, if you didn't see Monday Night Four Corners, um, Department of Defence has contaminated groundwater from using a toxic foam in its firefighters across 18 defence bases around Australia. Um, scientific research has linked the chemicals to a range of human disease, although the federal government's formal formal health advisor says um, there is no consistent evidence. Um, however, farmers and residents have been affected, uh, you know, in regions that were affected, have been advised not to drink the water and also not to eat the fruit and veggies that, you know, they might be producing or growing. So this has affected quite a number of people. But um, one story that touched me was a an orchid, an apple orchid farmer that had to just let their whole harvest drop to the ground and, you know, die. <laughs> Are they going to get any compensation? It doesn't sound, the, the report didn't. Um, bring up any compensation as yet, but I'm sure that those are, you know, underway in some form of investigation. Have to be. Mm. Yeah. Um, in 2000, the company announced that it was phasing out the foam, and the U.S. authorities even warned the Australian government um, that there would be probably a human health risk. And then they continued using it for two years. So it's really devastating news on, you know, our government's ability to communicate and pull back that foam. Um, 
That's a happy story. Who's got some? <laughs> uh, board member for the Rationalist Society of Australia, uh, Hugh Harris, has penned a piece for the Huffington Post. Uh, champions of religious freedom should be careful what they pray for. Uh, and Hugh outlines um, exactly why we came to secularism in Australia in the first place. And it, uh, I think we've discussed this on the show before, but uh, really had nothing to do with um, those who were not religious and those who were, who were religious. It was, uh, uh, you know, two sides of the same coin. It was uh, different groups of Christians that... Um, were at each other's throats in business and uh, in in political and, and social uh, environments, and uh, uh, pointing out that's why we needed the secularism, freedom uh, of religion, but also freedom uh, from religion. And uh, Hugh makes the case that uh, those who were claiming that we need religious freedom and, and crying quite loudly about it uh, in the same-sex marriage debate are perhaps forgetting that. Um, if they really want truly truly want religious freedom, that doesn't just apply to them. It also applies to every other religious group, and it also applies to those who don't want anything to do with it, um, like me. <laughs> yes, indeed. Separation of church and state. Yes. A basic principle in democracy. And the Rationalist Society have been around for 100 and something years making uh, these sorts of uh, points, and I think they do a quarterly magazine if you um, sign up for a membership with them. Now the news. Now the news. <laughs> MV Michaela, who um, is the backbone of a lot of um, news stories here at 3CR Radio, sent through something last night, and it was titled "Why Mental Health Awareness Isn't Enough," um, and it's in the wake of um, this week and Mental Health Awareness Week. And I'd segue into that, but I'll give you a little brief into it. It's another man, and it's just it's published in context of the UK and how a lot of people who uh, fellas are struggling with their emotions and how to talk about their emotions and the article goes in um, there's a lot of pressure put upon masculine population to talk about how they're feeling um, yet they're struggling to do so and sort of um, bringing up a few stats about how a lot of people under the age of 45 are committing suicide and it's a big rate mm. and sort of talking about how to get people in touch with services that are there to help people who are feeling this mm. way and need to reach out and be part of a community and sort of reconnect and sort of help themselves through these processes by connecting with others, mm. which I think leads us very well into who we have in the studio. Well, uh, before we before we go into that, we have a rally this morning at 9am at the Broadmeadows Magistrate Court in solidarity uh, with Refu uh, Refugee Action Collective member James Crafty, uh, who's been charged with damages to vehicles as part of the recent protest against the deportation of Saeed C uh, CNR of... Oh, I think that's the location there. Uh, it's got a bit cuffed off. But of Saeed, uh, is at Dimbula Road and Piersdale Parade at Broadmeadows from nine this morning. Big time. Please get down to that if you can. If not, check it out online. But right now we have Wellways Director of Mental Health Services, Laura Collister. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure, Patty. And Wellways has done a lot of work here at 3CR and have the sponsorship of the program Brainwaves here and have been doing so for a long time, I believe. Yeah, I think it's been going for a good couple of years now. Um, Brainwaves is our regular radio program. Um, and what's unique about Brainwaves from our perspective is it's run by people who've experienced mental health issues themselves. And um, we think that that's really important. In fact, the evidence says that the more people can get in contact with people who've got a lived experience of mental illness, the more attitudes will change and 
that means that people are much more likely to seek help and seek help early. So it sort of relates to your earlier comment, Patty, about people who struggle with mental health issues not necessarily seeking out help, probably because of the stigma and exclusion they feel. Mm. So brainwaves has been really important. Mm, big time. I'd imagine it would be that, getting in to the community and it, spreading that message of how mm. to connect in. And from doing a little bit of research last night, I was bit ignorant of Wellways, but mm-hmm. looking and scratching around, it seems like it's a beautiful program and does a lot of community engagement and also community advocacy and also education around mental health. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping you'd tell us a little bit about how that education and engagement happens outside yeah. of Brainwaves. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it, it's similar to Brainwaves in that we, are, we know that contact with people with mental health issues actually changes attitudes. Awareness and education just isn't enough. It's changing attitudes and being able to include people with mental health issues that really makes a difference. So we've got a range of kind of programs, some of which are funded for a short time and some of which we manage to continue throughout, that are about um, supporting people with a lived experience to work in the community and talk to the community about their experience of mental ill health, their experience of recovery and moving on to their experience of inclusion and how that makes an incredible difference to the well-being of everybody, but particularly somebody who's experienced mental ill health. Mm. And there's some great um, videos in there that Well yeah, Wellways yeah. has. Just like gives you a snippet into that insight that you were talking about, the inclusion, and then becoming employed by Wellways and those yeah. sort of pathways. Could you tell us a little bit about how sure. Wellways came about? I understand that it was from a collective of people quite frustrated yeah. with the mental health services that were offered back in the 1970s. Yeah, so if you go back to that period of time in Melbourne, we were undergoing a period of what was called deinstitutionalisation in mental health. Mm. And the large hospitals who, that were on the outskirts of Melbourne at the time were being closed down. And what that meant is a whole lot of people were returning to their families and returning to community, but without community supports or mm. services. Literally, there were groups of families that had their son, daughter, living in their bedroom and not meaningfully connecting with anybody and losing their young adult life to mental health issues. Um, when the government deinstitutionalised all these hospitals, they did not build the community services that would enable people to thrive in their community at all. So a group of families got together and and thought we are going to not only support each other as family members, but we're going to advocate for the gov- to the government to create more community services and supports. And they weren't necessarily talking about treatment, although treatment's really important. They talked about support in the community. And that's how Wellways was born, really, was from an advocacy kind of position, mm-hmm. but from a lived experience position as well. Mm-hmm. So that kind of had maintained... I guess what I would call the heart of our organisation. Mm-hmm. And you're right that fast forward to today, we're a large service provider, um, but at our heart is this experience of people who live with mental health problems and their families and friends. I mean, that whole deinstitutionalisation program was really shocking the way that was mm-hmm. managed. I mean, the idea was, and the research showed, that people were better off in communities Absolutely. instead of institutions. Mm-hmm. So the government said, woohoo, we'll sell off those institutions, we'll save all this money, but we won't put it back into the community. And that basically, to me anyway, 
was the problem. And so it's fantastic that your organization yeah, came yeah. in. But how is it now? I mean, has anything improved generally for the support networks? I think over the years things have improved a lot. Um, so there are a lot more community services available. There's many organisations like Wellways that um, seek to support people who are living in the community. Um, but is there enough? <laughs> the answer would have to be no, absolutely no. And, um, you know, we, organisations like us, are looking at the advent of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And in Victoria, that has meant that some of our current programs have been defunded and been transferred to the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which doesn't quite provide the same level of active support um, that um, we have previously provided. So it hasn't been an add-on service, the NDIS. It's been a um, replacement service, unfortunately. Isn't that for just <laughs> always the story? Absolutely. It's so sad, really. Mm, yeah. I mean, people need support. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we know that um, with support, people with mental health issues can achieve employment, they can achieve wonderful community contributions, um, but all our national reports say that people aren't achieving that, mainly because of the lack of community support, partly because of the lack of treatment, but also the lack of a welcoming community to include people as well. Mm. I worked at a um, RSR, a Residence Service space in Darabin mm -hmm. and experienced a lot of people there were living with mental disabilities and mm. mental ailments and seeing the um, stigma walking around in certain areas of Darabin was quite hard to watch and then also participate but also myself entering into that space and not have worked or had the opportunity to work with a lot of people who were suffering quite severe mental ailments um, was very insightful thing, but seeing organisations like yourselves coming in and servicing a space like that was quite amazing. I was mm. a bit upset with the way that it was looking after within that resident space, but I think a lot of the service providers who were coming in as external carers was quite beautiful and the work that was done mm. coming from an ad advocacy and taking the time to figure out um, what these people needed on an individual basis but I was wondering how that was working with the new framework with the NDS because at principle it sounds like that's what it's working towards but how is it rolling out now? And I remember chatting to someone yesterday about it and it sounds like it's a, it's got space to move a little bit but there's a lot of difficulties, can be a bit fluid and change as it goes but it's obviously quite a challenge. Look, it is a challenge. I mean, all big change like the National Dis Disability Insurance Scheme is a huge challenge. In mental health, what we face, I think, is a scheme that was primarily designed for people with physical disability and intellectual disability, and then, as an afterthought, mental health was put in. And so we are kind of... Um, it's sort of like a square peg in a round hole. We're trying to make it work, and people are working really hard for that to happen. But there are some real challenges. Um, and one of the challenges is that the individual funding that is provided to individuals may not be able to provide the quality of support that is needed and the type of support that is needed. So that's one of the mm. challenges. I suppose related to that is that in the National Disability Insurance Scheme, there's not a lot of focus on working to change community attitudes. And um, we believe and know that working with an individual isn't enough. 
one has to work with community and families to enable them to feel strong and being able to welcome people. Mm. And that has great health outcomes too. Um, Yeah, so... And you're touching on something. We just had a guest in not long ago. What was his name, Kate? It was Dr... Lucas D. Toka. Yeah, it was from the, from the Northern New Age, um, Aboriginal Health Corporation in uh, East Arnhem Land. Right. Yeah. Mm. Sharing about that kind of similar to what you're saying, that community localised, individualised, um, you know, approach to mental health mm. um, yes. rather than, yeah, this institutionalised. Yeah. Yeah, well, that community, like there's an individual, but the individual's connected to a wider group of community and mm. reconnecting but, people in there. That, that feels like that. I, I read a quote from uh, Lila Watson at the end of that, which was, um, uh, if you have come to help me, then you're wasting your time. Uh, but if your liberation is bound with mine, then let us work together. And I think mm. that um, sort of reflects what's, what's going on here. Because sometimes you, you get these institutions that want to come in and solve the problem for someone, but they're not listening. They're not interacting. They're not actually... They, they, they've got all this data from wherever they've got it from, this idea about what the problem is but they're not really listening to what the problem is. So they're, they're trying to solve something that isn't the problem and that can exacerbate mm. the problem, I think. Um, I think one thing you said is really important, that when somebody comes in to solve the problem and you define the problem as the individual, that something's wrong with the individual, mm. you're actually missing the story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because the story is that that person's not achieving their aspirations, they're not making relationships, they're not feeling valued by a world. And that's what makes a huge difference. Yes, I was wondering when you say you're providing support, what specifically do you provide? Like what is the support that is required? Someone walks in the door, what do they need? I mean, I'm sure it will vary person to person, but can we just have an example? For sure. So what we would, um, our philosophy to um, how we provide support at Rollways is that we work with the individual and that person may need to develop skills, they may, may need to, ve- to develop um, confidence to address some of the trauma from their past, a very individual kind of focus. Um, they may need to um, get support getting out and about in the community. But then we say, you know what, we need to include your family and friends in that story as well. They need to know a little bit about what's going on for you. They need to develop the skills and confidence to uh, maintain a relationship with you. And they need to um, look at their own um, sense of trauma that's been about having a loved one in their family that's been through such an experience as mental ill health. And then we say, look, to build a meaningful life, let's look at your employment opportunities, let's look at your leisure, your community connection opportunities, and how can we work in those spaces that's going to help you connect. We don't want to be in somebody's life forever. Yes. In fact, our aim is to move out of somebody's life and let them get on with it. And how successful is your approach? I mean, I realise with these kinds of programs, it's coming and going, you know, a few steps Mm. forward, steps back. Uh, How do you feel about the work you're doing? Have you seen some successes? Look, what we know with the right support, people can achieve enormous outcomes. Um, The people that you work with on brainwaves are people that have been, had significant mental health issues, who have been in hospital, who have felt lonely and isolated and are now feeling empowered, they have a voice, they contribute to the community and their mission is to change the attitudes of people. Um, We know with the right support, um, people can achieve great employment outcomes. As an example, generally only about 26% of people with mental health issues achieve employment, even though about 80% of people actually want to get into the workforce. Mm. 
If you actually employ good evidence-based practice, you can improve that to about 50 to 55%. That's not common practice in Australia at all, but we know with the right support, things can improve enormously. Are there models overseas that you look to? Um, well, I think the employment model is absolutely a model that we look to. Um, and that employment model says, you know what? If somebody says they want a job as a support provider, go and help them get a job. That's it. Doesn't sound like rocket science, does it? <laughs> but we create systems that put people through processes <coughs> that make people develop and prove themselves before we actually get to do that. Um, the individual, um, sorry, the intentional um, peer support model is another model that's from overseas that's about how people use their lived experience in a peer worker role to create change and connect with somebody who's experiencing their own mental health issues. Um, so that's another overseas model that's evidence-based that we use at Wellways. Beautiful. And Laura, if people want to get in contact or get involved with Wellways, I understand that you have a volunteer program um, and different ways to connect. What is the best way for people to contact or reach out to Wellways? Uh, the best way is to ring our helpline, which is a volunteer helpline run by trained people with a lived experience of mental health issues. Um, 1300 311 500 is our helpline. It operates nine till nine, five days a week. Thank you so much for coming in and joining us this morning. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. This is 3CR Breakfast, uh, about five minutes away from 8.30 and uh, stick together. Uh, in the meantime, do we have some uh, some events or any other uh, final remarks that anybody would might like to make, Kate? <laughs> <laughs> I have an event. Um, so... Earthship founder Mike Reynolds. Um, Earthships are a radical, sustainable building. Um, they came from New Mexico, um, built out of tyres, bottles, natural materials, and we spoke to Daryl Taylor a few weeks ago. He is building one in King Lake. Um, the founder, so Mike Reynolds, is coming from New Mexico this weekend. He's here this week, and you can see him in Coburg Town Hall, 5 p.m. on Sunday. Um, and to find that event, we'll for sure share it on our Facebook page or you could just uh, Facebook search Mike Reynolds Earthship and, um, and find that if you were interested. Any other? I'm sure there's heaps of events, but that's all I got for you. <laughs> Any other events? Oh, hi. Uh, we've got one from Laura. If you don't mind. <laughs> so um, part of Mental Health Week for Wellways is um, the um, Bruce Woodcock Memorial Lecture that's happening at the Art Centre this evening. It is sold out. However, oh. <laughs> <It's> standing room. <laughs> Are there some scalpers out there? <laughs> and when I say sold out, it's fully booked. Um, um, Uncle Jack Charles is speaking of oh, his oh, experiences. Yeah. yeah, which we were looking we forward to. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But it is being live streamed on the Worldways Facebook page from six thirty. The power of this uh, ability to broadcast absolutely. Uh, that every organisation now has—it's something that um, I've been using uh, in organisations I'm involved with—and yeah. it just it gives you that ability when you do have an event that is, you know, that, that's going to be full for those uh, who uh, can't come along because of that, or maybe can't come along because of some other reason, whether it's a disability or they've got some other responsibilities. Maybe they've got mm. little kids running around or an elderly relative to look after. Maybe are elderly themselves or disabled or the, whatever you can watch it now on your phone in bed <laughs> so That's it's great it. it's the future now yeah. um <laughs> now i'm getting pictures of those uh those uh wally um bulbous human figures 
um, Wally the movie. You know, they're they're, yeah. they're bubbling yeah. around in their little doing nothing because they've got their little televisions. In front. It's not that kind of future. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. On a different, a different and, uh, track. And Nick, this will be interesting for you. <laughs> The Open Society Foundation is launching a globally informed, locally responsive Hong Kong's common sense approach to expanding methadone treatment on the 18th of October. Mm. So that's yeah. a bit bit far from here. However, given Hong Kong is a part of China and China has quite a repressive policy, I think this is very interesting. Well, we repressive and, geez, what an interesting history that China has had with uh, yeah. China oh, and, and the United indeed. Kingdom with opiates. and Yes, um, with the British selling opium, the opium, opium wars being about the Chinese trying to stop the British from selling mm. opium to their people. Yeah, and, and mm. now, um, of course, the, the state that's in control of China um, uh, is, is pretty notorious uh, for not really talking about their drug issues. Uh, mm. And it's really great when you don't measure and don't talk about the problems in society, you can say fairly uh, truthfully that it's well, not not truthfully. We don't have a the, drug problem the, the, here. Yeah, it's not. It's not there. We don't have any data. It doesn't exist. Hey, um, but it's not. It's the not. The politics very of data has been mm. a bit of a theme to this morning. Um, also, uh, if you're looking for something fun to do and you're a bit of a bike rider, it is spring now. Uh, this uh, Saturday from six p.m. Uh, is the bike rave, the spring version of the bike rave, which is where everyone puts lights on their bikes and uh, brings along a little sound thing and plays the same song at the same time or something. I haven't actually been along to one yet. This is my understanding of what happens. Uh, you meet down at Birarong Ma uh, at 6pm and then everybody rides off together. Um, into the sunset. Into the sunset or into or the rainbow. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, everyone. Um, our, our guests as well. Thank you to all of our guests. Uh, yeah, Lucas, Gabrielle, Nina. We've got Laura. We had Dennis. So thanks for everyone. Wednesday, Brecky. Warm day, or maybe a rainy day. We don't know. <laughs> Get out and enjoy both. Yes, yeah. yes, um, we will uh, find out. And um, hey, do you want to just uh, fill up me for a second? And <laughs> I'd like to say thank you, Judith. I believe you will be oh. migrating to Monday breakfast. As of next week. Oh, it's all true. But I'll be, but I'll be around and, and I'll be bringing some sounds in for you. Excellent, yes. Sound collecting. <laughs> See you later. We'll be back uh, next Wednesday from uh, you know, about the same time, 7 a.m.